How does someone with very little self-confidence and who is also very shy then go on to become a radio and TV presenter, hosting their own live radio show, interviewing royals, Oscar-winning actors and musical superstars, as well as presenting shows in front of thousands of people and eventually moving to another country? My name is Simon Baldock and this podcast is called Tales from a Very Minor Celebrity. This is the story of how I conquered my insecurities and went on to have a 35-year career in broadcasting both in the UK and in Spain. You'll hear some of my most memorable interviews, one of which was featured on Radio 4's Pick of the Week, and all the adventures I've had both in the UK and Spain, and the stories behind them. Like the time I delivered half a carcass of beef to Margaret Thatcher at 10 Downing Street, and the time I carried a million pounds worth of diamonds on the tube in an old Sainsbury's bag on the way to a photo shoot with Lord Snowden at the Ritz. This episode is called Just Like That which you might have guessed even after that awful impersonation is about Tommy Cooper. But the interview you'll hear is with Andy Summers, lead guitarist of The Police, the British rock band who were huge during the 70s and 80s and had massive hits including Walking on the Moon, Message in a Bottle, Roxanne and so on. As well as Andy Summers, the other two members were drummer Stuart Copeland and of course Sting, lead singer and bassist. They've sold over 75 million records, making them one of the best-selling bands of all time, and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003. So, where does Tommy Cooper fit into this story? Well, I always really enjoyed interviewing people that I could link to one of my personal experiences. With Andy Summers, it was the fact that they were the only band that I'd ever camped out overnight to get tickets for, and the only concert that I was at where the warm-up act was booed off stage. And that warm-up act was Tommy Cooper. And I wondered for years why on earth they decided to invite Tommy Cooper to be their pre-concert warm-up act. And now I had the opportunity to get the answer. More on that in just a moment. When it came to going to concerts, though, I was a relatively late starter. Well, compared to my friends, that is. The police concert on Tootingbeck Common was in fact the very first gig I'd been to. It was 1980, I would have been about 22, and the police were one of the biggest bands in the world at that time. Not a bad introduction into the world of live music. Since then, I've been lucky enough to have gone to see some really great concerts, including ZZ Top in America, the Rolling Stones in Spain, when in just one week, I also saw the 1982 World Cup final and a great World Cup semi-final between West Germany and France, which is regarded by many as one of the best matches of all time. But that's a story for another day. And also Genesis at Wembley in 1987. That was a great concert as well, with the late Diana, Princess of Wales, in attendance. And she waved at me. Well, I waved at her, and she did wave back in my sort of direction, so I'm claiming it. But I missed out on probably what was one of the biggest and best concerts of all time, Live Aid. Yes, I had tickets to the original Live Aid concert at Wembley in July 1985 but I ended up giving them away because a family friend's son was getting married on the same day and my mum guilted me into going with her because, well, nobody else would. 
At the time, it didn't seem to be that big a deal. But as we all know, Live Aid turned out to be one of the most iconic music events of all time. And I've regretted missing out on being a part of it and a part of history ever since. I actually bought two tickets. I think they were £25 each, which was quite a lot of money for me back then. I actually got them through Midyear's manager at the time, who was going out with somebody that I worked with. Midyear worked very closely with Sir Bob on organising Live Aid. When this work colleague found out that I'd actually missed the concert, she arranged for Bob and Midge to sign the official souvenir book for me, which I still have to this day. Not the same as actually being there, but a nice memento nonetheless. Anyway, back to Andy Summers, who I interviewed in 2004, and listen out for the explanation of why they had Tommy Cooper as their warm-up act. I began by asking him about the circumstances surrounding the group's split. Well, actually, you know, the, the real official breakup of the group was in February 1984 when we, we did the last concert, right. real concert, in yeah. uh, Melbourne, Australia. There was a sort of um, somewhat feeble attempt in 86 to get us back together, which yeah. was uh, didn't really work out. Um, and then we did the Amnesty Tour. We did six dates in America on this Amnesty Tour with uh, other people like... Um, you too, for instance. Yeah. But uh, it just uh, interests me. When a band as big as the police decide to split up, it, it must be so complicated. You can't just say, right, we're not going to play together anymore. One of the unfortunate things about the, the band breakup, it, it, it rather was like that. We never actually formally sat down and said, all right, well, you have this bit and you have this bit, and then we're not going to play, but this is what we're going to say. We just sort of stopped. You know, I mean, it was really Sting didn't want to do it anymore, which, mm. you know, if that's what he didn't want to do, then he didn't want to do it. It just sort of came to a great one. Well, this is it. You know, there were murmurings in the summer of 1983, of course, when we were almighty. You know, we had yeah. the number one record for four months straight, played Chase Stadium. He was murmuring about, like, I think we should stop now. Mm. And uh, he really meant it. And although we never formally agreed to it, I mean, maybe, I, you know, we should have argued about it and said, no, well, absolutely not. Or we'll do one more record and then we'll wait two years and we'll see. You know, I don't know. Do you think you could have gone on for a few more years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, the thing in retrospect, it seems like an incredibly gutsy move to have got off at the absolute high point of the art, which is what we did. You know, I mean, we were we got off at the top. Yeah. I've only ever queued overnight to get tickets for one concert, and that was uh, to get tickets to see you guys play Tooting Beck Common. Oh, my God. I, I know. That's I think 1980 yeah, or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I, it was very strange because we flew directly from Rio de Janeiro. To Tooting Beck Common. About that. <laughs> and am I dreaming it? Was Tommy Cooper your warm-up? You absolutely right. And, you know, it was one of those ideas. We were, oh, wouldn't this be brilliant? You know, we'd have Tommy Cooper. We all love Tommy. Everybody loves Tommy Cooper. We thought this would be so great, you know. Poor old Tommy Cooper went out on front and he just got slaughtered because he his kids, no, who he was, were so absolutely foaming at the mouth to see us. <laughs> Poor old Tommy didn't stand a chance, and he came off like white. Oh, look at him again. And we thought, our hero, you know, we've just done the greatest thing for Tommy Cooper. You know, we're going to make him really famous. Yeah, what a mistake. It was a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, a yeah. couple of questions. What was the greatest uh, concert you ever played? You know, I mean, it would be tempting to say Shea Stadium, you know, but, I, you know, not necessarily. I mean, I really remember the first two years when we were really <clears throat> playing in clubs in the U.S., I think, you know, we had some really incredible evenings of, you know, very improvised and incredible sort of incredibly inspired 
you know, kind of rock jammed because we were so intent on making it. There was just an incredible fierceness to playing. And also, we didn't have all the hits then. So we, we weren't going on stage and trotting out 15 hits in a row, and that was it. There was room to, we were finding our way. And, you know, for my money, you know, somewhere like my father's place on Long Island and probably somewhere late 79, you know. What's your favorite police track that you play on stage? Well, it was always, to be honest, it was always... Um, Message in a Bottle. Really? Great song, you know, very uh, inspiring. Do you still play any of the Police uh, records when, you, when you're when you touring? You know, you sort of keep it in the sort of back pocket just yeah. in case. I mean, I've done gigs in Italy and I've done, done gigs in like places like Argentina and Chile where things got have gotten so out of hand that the, the only way to finish the, thing, the concert off was to play some Police songs. You know, I did a concert in um, Mexico City in 91 and uh, about 5,000 people turned up. It was at a place called the Angel Peralta in the middle of the city. And it, the people were totally rabid. And, you know, I was sort of playing my sort of jazzy, jazz fusion, <laughs> you know, <laughs> killing, you know, burning away, you yeah. know. But, you know, it was coming and I knew it. So they said, all right, well, you know, Abelese. You know, so I, I play one song and I said, all right, what are you singing? Yeah. You know, and I'll play. And I started sort of playing like, Something like every breath you take. The audience sang the entire song, word perfect. So then I played another one. I ended up playing about ten police songs in a row, and they they just did the vocals. Um, the most extravagant thing you ever bought yourself? Well, well, let's see. I don't know. I mean, what would I? What's extravagant? You know, I always have really nice cars. I got a pretty flash Mercedes back in LA that I like to drive. But spending money on clothes, probably I like just having incredible wardrobes and very fancy clothes. That's your thing, is it? Clothes? Well, it was. It was it's yeah. not so much anymore because I one. Of, thing about living in LA I've found over the years is that one doesn't really need to have quite such a vast wardrobe partly because of the climate you can pretty much live in sort of designer t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> and what's Stuart Copeland doing nowadays well Stuart and I are going to play together a little bit later this year we've oh, really? met quite a lot recently yeah you know we got together last year because of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and we actually played quite a lot we, we work with an African bass player in LA a guy called Aman Sabal Leko we're going to play in Vietnam together this year um, on the world the second World Music Peace Festival, which is going wow. to take place in Hanoi. The idea is to do a set of uh, police songs with um, whichever singers we can find, like maybe two or three different singers. Fantastic. Yeah, that's going to be great. And um, last time you spoke to Sting? Well, you know what? I think it was probably at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame almost a year ago. Mm. Ironically, I got on the plane to come to London, and uh, that same night he called me. Yeah, because he was in LA and he was hanging out over at um, Stewart's uh, brother Ian has a place called uh, Backstage up in Beverly Hills, which is a bit of a, a hang. Mm. And Sting was going over there later, and I think he wanted to meet up with Stuart and I. But unfortunately, I couldn't make it. So I expect he was crying and sobbing about it. <laughs> so there you have it: the story behind Tommy Cooper's first, and I'm sure only performance at a rock concert. Now, next week, you'll hear from two singers, Michael Bolton and Engelbert Humperdinck. Bolton will be appearing in the US version of the Eurovision Song Contest, which starts soon. And, of course, Engelbert represented the UK in 2012 with the song Love Will Set You Free. <laughs> he finished 25th out of 26 entries. But apart from singing, they also both share a passion for my favourite participation sport. Golf is uh, uh, a game I took up late, uh, late in life. Most of my friends started when they were 12 years old. I don't yeah. know if you noticed that when you asked them. Absolutely, it's almost yeah. always 12. It's not yeah. 13, it's not 11 and a half. It's, I started playing when I was 12. I mean, I play, I'm not, I play a fair game, but not, uh, I'm not a professional standard. I did beat Tiger Woods once, though. You're joking. Yeah, he was five years old, but I gave him a <laughs> terrific game. Bolton and Humperdinck, 
my guests on next week's Tales from a Very Minor Celebrity. <laughs> <laughs>